Podia is like an amazing Swiss Army knife for selling anything online. It's an all-in-one digital storefront where you can sell courses, memberships, and digital downloads all in one place. The cool thing about Podia is that they eliminate all of the technical headaches. You don't have to install anything. You can host your sales pages there, your files, your checkout process. You can even do your email marketing and newsletters right from Podia. Fizzle Show listeners get 15% off of Podia for life by signing up for a free trial over at podia.com slash fizzle. That's P-O-D-I-A dot com slash fizzle. Thanks to Podia for sponsoring The Fizzle Show and for supporting independent entrepreneurs like you and me. Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. This is our podcast about building sustainable, meaningful small businesses and earning a living independently doing something you really care about. And today I am joined by three amazing guests. First up, we have Janelle Allen, founder of Zen Courses at zencourses.co. Janelle is an instructional designer who helps her clients create life-changing online courses. Hi, Janelle. Hey, Corbett. We're also joined by Brennan Dunn, founder and CEO of Write Message. Write Message is a suite of opt-in form and call-to-action tools that sit on top of your existing website and allow you to personalize the message for each visitor, resulting in more opt-ins and sales than traditional tools. Hi, Brennan. Hey, how are you? Awesome. Thanks for being here. And finally, we're joined by an old friend of the show. Barrett Brooks was previously a co-host of The Fizzle Show and is now Chief Operating Officer at ConvertKit, which makes email marketing software for creators and was just named number 23 on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies. Hey, Barrett. Hey, Corb. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is going to be a fun conversation today. Uh, As always, for you listening at home, you'll find links to everything we talk about in today's episode, including links to each of our guests, businesses, or projects over at fizzleshow.co slash 342. And today, since we have three of, dare I say, uh, our geekier online business friends, I think you all would qualify in that way. On the show today, I thought we could go kind of deep on each of the topics that you all are experts in these days. So let's start off with Janelle and online courses. I want to talk about the current state of online courses, if that's okay. The market for online courses continues to grow year after year. We see this quantified by the growth of all the big online course platforms like Teachable and Podia, Thinkific, Coursera, Udemy. There's a ton of them. And we see that they're growing every year so that we know people are spending more and more on online courses. But... My question, as a creator myself, and somebody who works with a lot of creators, are online courses still a realistic way to earn a living as an independent creator online? Yes, they are, with an asterisk. (laughs) But yes. With a big asterisk or a small asterisk? A small asterisk. And I think it's a good asterisk. So I would say that asterisk is, you know, the, the market has gotten more discerning. And, you know, I think everyone on the call knows or remembers the time when online courses started rolling out and and it was a thing you started to see. And I think now people are paying more and more attention to the quality. They want to be, you know, they want to feel more assured. There's a lot out there. And so people are are a bit more picky. So it is still a, a feasible way of having 
a business and having revenue come in, but you really have to be on top of understanding your audience and knowing how to market and solve problems and sell and all of that good stuff. And, and you mentioned the quality of courses in general. I mean, there are things out there like, um, is it masterclass? Is that the name of it? The one where they have like Uber celebrities teaching the thing that they know best, like, you know, a, a famous director like Martin Scorsese is teaching you directing or something. It's, it's pretty hard to compete with that, especially when they have, you know, these multi-camera setups and, um, Mm -hmm. you're getting all of that for a pretty reasonable price. I think they're like $199 or something like that. Yeah. So you're up against that, but then there's of course a whole lot of garbage out there as well. Where do you have to fall in terms of your technical abilities and, and quality and so on to be able to sell enough of these to actually support yourself? That's that's a big question. I think, you know, I think a lot of people get hung up on having to have this this cinema or studio level quality. And I don't think that's a requirement. I think what's most important is knowing the problem that you're solving and being able to solve it. And you know, as far as quality is concerned, if you're plugged in with your audience, if they're engaged with you, I think you have some leeway, as I think everyone on the call would agree, mm-hmm. that it doesn't have to be perfect. We say that all the time as entrepreneurs. It doesn't have to be perfect for you to put it out there. Uh, you can improve the quality over time. But when I say quality, I'm really talking about delivering results. And that's the change that I have seen is, is consumers are you know, we all can probably think of one or two courses where someone took some written text and threw it in an online course platform and ta-da, this is a course and never check in to see, did it work? Did people learn? And that's what I think the market is getting hip to. So when I say quality, I mean, are you helping people achieve the, the transformation. And you can't account for every single person, but by and large, have you, have you done the work to make sure that uh, you've done everything that you can to, ensure, to, to help that happen? Brennan, uh, you've had an online course for a number of years, right? Double your freelancing. When, when did that first come out? So the original version uh, was back when eBooks were a thing, uh, was back in 2011. And yeah, that was a course on pricing and, or I should say a book on pricing. And that did evolve. That that was kind of that time period of when a bunch of us were adding in video interviews and downloadables and so on. And we would do that kind of three tier uh, Ryan Dell kind of model of, um, of pricing. Right. Um, So I, you know, I've been doing it for a while now, but to Janelle's point, what's interesting is when it comes to helping people actually be successful, I recently went through, I've seen this kind of shift happening, and I know Janelle has a ton more data than I do about this, but just from my own perspective, where a lot of people are deconstructing what used to be more self-serve video courses into things like Brian Harris has a number of accelerators where it's like a month long program with two weekly zoom calls and it's a slack room and you know, they have like an offboarding call and all, all these different kind of models. That is something that I've been keenly looking at because you know, over at right message, we're thinking, how do we, there's a lot of education that we need to do. And should we do an, a video course? Should we do something like what, what Brian's done or should we do some other format? And I, you know, it's one of these things that the, the model has changed. It used to be a Gumroad zip file with a PDF and a bunch of like video extras and this and that. And then it kind of moved to things like Teachable and and Thinkific, these hosted video platforms. And now 
now we're seeing like, you know, are we still using Facebook groups? Are we using Discord? Are we doing something like Slack? And it's it's fascinating to me. I, I, I'm by no means, I'm definitely old school in how I currently sell my own courses, but it's something that as I look at refreshing a lot of these over time, I'm very keen at, at kind of the direction of how things are moving, or I'm very keen to know better the direction that things are moving in. Barrett, do you have a sense? Uh, I I believe you guys survey sometimes people in your audience, and you have uh, tens of thousands of creators on the ConvertKit platform now. Do you have a sense for how many of them are creating online courses? Uh, I think that's the dream for most of them. When we survey people, I the reality is that they're they're selling courses one way or the other, um, and. I think that's because people like Brennan and Janelle have been teaching forever how to create a course based on your knowledge. Um, it seems like the kind of dream that you can create the, uh, this thing one time and then sell it repeatedly over years and years. And there's so many examples of that. I, I think the hard thing, and I've harped on this forever, is uh, are you as a creator good enough at something to be able to teach it to other people? And that's always going to be the challenge is have you put in the years or uh, the time to get the experience necessary to be a good teacher, to get someone an outcome like Janelle was talking about. But yeah, we see most of the creators on the platform either have a course or would like to have a course someday. Uh, and I'd say it's, a, it's well over half of our creators. And we have about 25,000 customers today. And, and tactically, um, do you see anything that people are doing that helps them to stand out? Brennan mentioned... Um, Brian Harris, who has a program now, I, I, I talked to him recently, and he's basically doing very, very um, uh, intensive kind of courses. They're almost like holding each customer's hand through the process and making sure that no one falls through the cracks. And he's going, uh, I guess, deeper with each individual person and uh, charging more because of it. And they're also shorter duration. I think he's running people through programs that last maybe four weeks or six weeks or something like that. Versus, you know, in in a lot of cases, a few years ago, the approach was more shotgun. It was more, let's just reach as many people as we can and sell courses, you know, for 49 bucks or 99 bucks or something like that each. And, um, I just wonder, like, have you, have you seen anything that people are doing that helps them stand out tactically? I'm sure Janelle's got information on this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the accelerator model is really hot right now and I'm seeing a lot of that. So I could go on and on forever. So reel me in if you need to, but you know, you're right. The self-paced model that was prevalent is what, that's changing for creators as well as consumers. So consumers are saying, you know what? I have tons of self-paced courses I've spent thousands of dollars on and I didn't get anything or I got very little or I didn't finish them. I mean, we all have that experience, right? And they're demanding more and they realize, I think what's happening collectively is people are realizing that they need more structure and community and engagement and handholding. And that is why that the accelerator model is really taking off because that is one major way to differentiate, you know, the between, between, for me, my group program was a direct result of people saying, I want a structured program with guidance. And that is a huge differentiator between here's a do it yourself program, figure it out. I'll be, I'll see you in Facebook if you have a question versus 
I'm going to work with you for a certain period of weeks and I'll be in the trenches with you. That's, that's huge. So that's one way to stand out. I'm also seeing on the flip side of that, people who have gone the self-paced route and then tried to do the passive income, you know, and, and realize that it's a little more work than, you know, Tim Ferriss initially hinted at. Um, and so they're, they're going back to consulting or, coaching. So it's definitely a time where people are questioning. People are asking to Brennan's point, should should I be on Facebook, you know, and that's also about Facebook itself. People are asking should the structure of my course be self-paced or should it be an accelerator or group program? It's a lot of questions right now. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing Janelle brought up that I would highlight is just the the reality of completion rates on so many courses online is so abysmal, and it has been pretty much since they got started, where you've got single-digit percentages of people who purchase a course actually going through all of the material. And I think that's why you see a lot of the more interactive formats is people are trying to figure out how do we get people to actually benefit Because even as a course creator, like, yes, you want that initial purchase, but what you really want is you want repeat customers, you want customers who are going to refer new customers. And for that to happen, they have to have actually gone through the material and benefited from it because that's what makes people talk. So I think that interaction is largely, how do we get people through the material more effectively? I Mm -hmm. I think from my perspective, a lot of us, I think, look to courses as almost visual evolutions of books, right? So I go to, I go to Barnes Noble or a bookstore and I, I'm sold by the cover. I'm sold by the title and I buy it, but I'm willing to bet if you were to do, if we could track completion rates of like business books, it'd probably be similar percentages, right? Like, I mean, most people, it's easy to think that you are doing something constructive by buying. It's very hard to actually not only consume what you just bought, but also put it into practice. And unless all of that happens, it's all for nothing, right? Like you can, you can buy a book and, or buy a course and watch course. But if you don't act on the course, it's, you haven't done anything. Yeah. So I think like, that's such a big thing that I think, yeah, this, I go to Barnes Noble, I buy a book from, uh, um, I don't know, Tim Ferriss. Tim doesn't know me. He doesn't know any, like there's no relation. It's a, he gets a royalty of that. Whereas we have this opportunity as creators to be able to say, I know Barrett just bought this. Maybe I know some other info about Barrett, and I now want to work with him alongside of maybe some pre-recorded or, you know, s- structured material, so he can be more likely to succeed. Like Brian charges you, I think, if you don't complete your homework in his accelerator, which is brilliant. I mean, it's it's like if you you pay more for the course if you don't do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's I think there's such a unique opportunity we have that you can't do if you think of it as this transactional, you paid me X, you get Y, buy kind of thing that I think a lot of course creators unfortunately end up doing. Yeah. And I, I think there's, um, there, there are two places where this matters. Uh, you know, some people just want to get some revenue going, but they're not thinking about the long-term sustainability of their business necessarily. So they're standing out up front and maybe paying lip service to some of these things. But if you want to have a course that's been around since 2011, like Brennan Dunn with Double Your Freelancing, um, or our Start a Blog That Matters course, which has been around since 2012 and still continues to sell, uh, I think you have to really be focused on the results that people are getting because that comes back to you eventually, right? In terms of uh, you know referrals and people that take your course going and then they go on to become successful with it and they tell other people about it. Janelle, how yeah. important are are referrals and and you know success stories in creating a course? 
it's it's hella important <laughs> because you know at the end of the day and and this just comes with developing as a business owner so i'll take a, a, a sidebar and say a lot of people who are starting out with online courses also have to remember or realize that you're building a business and at the end of the day you do need those success stories you need them especially for your course it gives you an opportunity to have testimonials and and which is huge when you're trying to sell to, for people to feel safe and feel like this is going to work for me because it worked for these other people. So I think it, it's very short sighted when when course creators just think about the revenue and just have the passive income dream and don't think about those results, because ultimately you delivering results is what is going to help build the sustainability of your business. Mm hmm. Let's uh, switch gears, if you don't mind, and talk about personalization. This is a deeper topic that we've been hearing about for years in marketing circles, that the next big thing in marketing will be mass personalization or mass customization, where a single marketing message or campaign becomes personalized for each person consuming it, because this has the promise of making marketing more effective for the marketer and more relevant for the consumer, but technically it's sort of difficult to pull off. So Brennan, I want to start with you because this is at the core of what Right Message does, but at its simplest level, can you illustrate how personalization works today and why this would be more effective than a traditional one-size-fits-all message? Yeah, so... Uh I, I like to give an analogy of, um, you know, before I got into doing anything I'm doing now, I used to own a consulting agency. And if a new lead walks in the door, you, you better believe we all do this. I'm going to find out a bit about well, how are they acting? What do they know? How are they speaking? And I, I try to effectively profile them through questions or whatever else so I can better explain what we do to them, right? So we all do this offline. If you want to persuade anyone of anything, you need to meet them where they are now and help them understand why they need what you're offering. And the websites are largely still modeled after brochures where you have different sections that say different things. And we look at them as being kind of one size fits all, right? Like this is this is this product or this is the sales page or this is this opt-in form. What personalization helps achieve is if we can understand a bit about who you are and what you need, we can then tailor bits and pieces of what we're showing. So whether it be a headline or a testimonial or whatever supporting copy, so that we can show you how this thing is more relevant to you, just like I would be doing offline. If I'm meeting with you, we're hanging out, having a cocktail in Portland or something. Um, I know you like cocktails. I know you like, like Portland. Like you I'm do segmenting Portland. you right now. Um, I'm saying something that appeals to you. It, that's that's how you do things, and unfortunately, I think we we live in this world, and I think it's largely the the tooling that has set us back, where we're thinking in terms of well, what is the best copy for the sales page, and what we should be thinking is who are the different types of people who might engage with the same product or the same sales page, and how can I make it more relevant to each of them um, based on again what I know about them. And at the root of it all, which we can probably dig into, is just a lack of segmentation. You can't personalize without segmentation. And most companies are absolutely horrible at segmentation. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, you mentioned that the tooling has set us back. And, and in a lot of cases, I think that's true. The tooling just doesn't allow for personalization or segmentation. But one area that has for a long time allowed for personalization, I think, is email. And uh, I want to ask Barrett about this in a, in a second. But Brennan, I think that you, uh, when you explained right message to me and sort of the, you know, the impetus for it, you mentioned that you had basically accomplished some personalization through email, saw how powerful it was, and then wanted to bring that to the homepage of your website as well. Explain how you were able to do that through email for people. Just explain how that would work. How would I personalize emails and make them more likely to convert people? So when most people think about when most people, if you were to ask, you know, nine out, nine, 99 out of 100 marketers how they personalize their emails, it would basically be they put people's first names in emails, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of the extent of it. I mean, that's mail merging. I don't consider that to be personalization. Um, what, I, what I'm getting at with that is most of us, most of our businesses work in such a way where we're using email to nurture and persuade people, but we lead them ultimately to a web a web page, right? So they're getting this email or the series of emails. They're led to a sales page to buy, or they're on a website, our website, and they're reading content and then they see an opt-in and then they're on our email list. And then ultimately they're led back to the website, right? So what I want to do is I, I'm trying to encourage people to have continuity across both mediums. Like they're both communication platforms for you, whether it be an email or a web page. Um, and what I tend to argue is that your email marketing database should be that single source of truth about who somebody is, what they've bought, and so on and so forth. Now, the good thing is email marketing software tends to integrate nowadays with virtually anything. So most of us are segmenting or tracking what people are buying. So I know this is a customer. I've tagged them as customer. I know they've done this. I know they've done that. Um, but you can do some things. You can obviously say, you know, to get into website personalization or even email personalization, I could say, if they're a customer, maybe my weekly newsletters PS for them could be saying if it's fizzle, hey, why don't you upgrade to annual and save 20% or whatever you might do. Whereas if they're not a customer, maybe start a trial or if they're starting a trial, hey, check out this, I don't know, webinar or something to help them kind of convert, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like the more down funnel way of looking at personalization and everything where you could say, Based on what you've done, here's what you should do next, right? So we all kind of have this offer funnel that we have for for people, but there's also that horizontal element of well, if what about if they're in this industry or this job role or this stage of their business or whatever else? So um, yeah, I mean, my thinking is keep all that in, in a subscriber's profile in their, your email database, and you can absolutely easily change the messages they get from you over email. But if you can get that data to your website. Then you can do the same thing there, and then there's complete. You're not. You're not saying the worst thing is to have a super personalized email sequence. Then you lead them to a generic sales page. Mm-hmm. Um, you completely drop the ball if you do that. But that's what most people do, because it, it's hard. Again, it, it's been hard historically to make all that work. I wonder. I remember back. Uh, I don't know. Maybe in the late 2000s when we were hearing about the prevalence of text messaging in other markets, like in Europe, everybody would say, oh, in Europe, you know, they just text message all day long. And I remember thinking like, what? Like who wants to sit there and text on their phone? And nobody was texting, right? Even though the capability was built into your phone, no one was texting in the US for several years. 
And now fast forward today and it's like, I don't ever answer my phone. It's in fact, I would rather someone text me because I can just glance down and see what they want. So I wonder if personalization in email tools is one of those things that has been there forever and everybody knows it's in there, but they're not using it for some reason and and, and why that is. Barrett, um, in ConvertKit, you can personalize whatever you would like. If you have the data, you can create a little uh, like if logic that says, if this person is this tag, then use this, insert this message. And if not, then insert this other thing. Do you have a sense for um, how many people are using this? Is this something that only more advanced marketers are using or do you see beginners understanding it? Yeah, it's mostly still just advanced marketers today. It's uh, it's fascinating actually, because we're still kind of in the early, early stages of this. Mm-hmm. I think about it like if you were going to go to a networking event or like a cocktail hour or whatever, where you were trying to meet fellow creators that you wanted to get to know a little better, the entire conversation would be based initially around trying to find common ground, some interest that you share, some point of... Uh, background that you have in common. And then you're going to jump off from there and say, Oh, cool. You like, uh, you like playing basketball too. That's awesome. Let's talk about your favorite NBA players or something like that as a completely random example. Cause I don't have one ready, <laughs> um, but the point being you're looking for a point of common ground so that you can build a relationship with someone from there because everyone likes other people who have something in common with them. It's one of the reason that we have so many biases that are inherent in us. And uh, I think of email marketing being a tool that can allow you to do that too. You're looking for these points of common ground or points of knowledge about the other person that you can reflect back to them to show that you understand them enough to sell them something. And uh, interestingly, like we could we could bring this back to courses too. But basically, I think what you want is you want to start collecting information about people as early as possible. So, like what Right Message allows you to do is it gives you another point of contact with a person to get to know them better on your website by asking them questions right there before they ever have to give you their email address. And what's magic about that is. Before you can get information from someone in email, you have to get them to subscribe, get them to open an email, and then get them to click on a thing that gives you the information. Whereas a tool like Write Message lets you do that right up front. And so now you're seeing these tool sets get built where you've got Write Message on your website and you've got email that can store all of this information and then use it to customize the uh, content that you're sending people. And I think about this like the sales process at ConvertKit. All the time, we'll get people that come in and their core question is always, do people like me use ConvertKit? They might be a food blogger. They might be a course creator. They might be uh, a celebrity chef or an athlete or a filmmaker or whatever. And what they want to know from us every time is, are there other filmmakers who use ConvertKit and sell more of their films as a result of that? And if we can use our email marketing to follow up with them and say, here's three examples of other filmmakers who use ConvertKit successfully to earn a full-time living doing their thing, that's going to resonate very deeply. And I think the very magic point of this that Brennan always highlights is you don't have to change the core product you sell in order to do this well. You just have to change the way you position it to people. Um, We could get into a nerdy thing about whether course content should be changing as well based on people's industry and all of that, because I think that makes it more relevant, but that's for another day modules that you would swap in and out or something that, you know, the other way that I think about personalization, uh, is in terms of niching down and the advice to niche down is generally espoused so that you will resonate more deeply with people. Because if you focus on a a really narrow group of folks, then your messaging is personalized in a way because those people all fit this certain criteria. Mm Janelle, when you're working with course creators, especially with just individuals who are trying to reach an audience, they're not necessarily trying to sell tens of thousands of something. They might just be selling 
uh, hundreds or thousands of something, then are those folks, uh, do you see them using personalization? Do you think they could benefit from it? Or are you still relying mostly on the just, you know, niche down and choose a really specific audience sort of advice? Most of them are not using personalization. Uh, and that runs the gamut from beginners to, you know, my clients who have seven figure businesses, they're, they're just, they're not doing it. And just uh, to Brennan's point, you have to segment before you can personalize. And I think that's the step, as Barrett said, we're early days with personalization. People are still trying to figure out segmentation mm -hmm. and that is, is super powerful. Um, but yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people still taking that niche down approach. Uh, one example is a, a past client, Gareth Pronovost. He teaches people how to use Airtable. He's got a super tight, tight niche. And because of that, he's able to have two really successful course launches because he just has to focus on one thing. Everybody who signs up for his email list wants to learn how to use Airtable. And they either are going to buy the course or they're going to hire him. But that's it. So I think that's an example of, of what people are doing. And so, yeah, seeing more of that. I think in, in Brennan's case, I'm just going to put words in your mouth here. <laughs> Uh, in in the case of a course on a specific topic like Airtable, which is sort of like a modern uh, spreadsheet meets database kind of software, it's pretty interesting. Uh, but in in your case, Brennan, would you advise that, okay, that's great, you're focused on one specific thing, but that doesn't mean you can't use personalization because people in different roles in businesses are likely looking to learn about Airtable for different reasons. Right. How would I you mean, personalize I, I something at, in that? So I look at two things that most of us should be collecting. One of which is why somebody's here. So why do they care about Airtable? What could Airtable do for them? Um, which is going to vary. I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't use Airtable. I know plenty of people who do. People use it in many different creative ways. Um, but also who somebody is. So are they, um, you know, are they a marketing person? Are they a, it may be the job role or, you know, whatever it might be, right? Whatever, whatever makes sense for you in the product. Because what you typically want to do, which works so well, is if you can position the offer, the thing, the course, differently based on why they're here. So if they join your email list because they're struggling with, um, let's pick on Pat Flynn, uh, people join his list and he asks them, what, what are you trying to do business-wise? Are you trying to start a business or grow a business is effectively what he's trying to figure out. Um, not only can that mean he routes you to a different product of his, but if it's the same product, uh, the 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 use of a podcast is much different for somebody who's established versus somebody who's not established, right? Um, so he's able to describe the thing differently to them. But you can also superimpose on top of that who somebody is and show people like them. They all want to see themselves in the product. They want to see themselves in the case studies and the testimonials. So if I, like to Barrett's example, food bloggers and different people use ConvertKit, if I am a food blogger and I see no one like me represented in the social proof or in the language being used or whatever else, I might think, can this really work for me? And what you're doing at that point is you're making the visitor, the viewer, the reader, you're putting it on them to read between the lines to see, does this help me? Mm -hmm. And, or conversely, you're overloading the sales page with so much crap that they need to think, can I find what I'm looking for in between all this stuff. And there's a lot of people, I mean, case in point podcasting, right? You have a podcasting course. The person who's starting a podcast does not want to see a bunch of testimonials from people who are like, this helped me, you know, 10x my already successful podcast. They're going to think, all right, this isn't for me. 
Whereas somebody who already has a podcast, if they're looking at a product where the opening salvo, that headline is all about like, start your first, you know, start your podcast and make it great. They're immediately going to dismiss it saying, this isn't for me. And I think that's, that's the, that's the problem is you have like an Airtable course, which I'm willing to bet could help people who don't have any sort of, you know, structured spreadsheety data versus people who have it already in Excel or something like that. And it's this, you know, mess over there. Um, it could probably help both of them, right? The same product could help both types of people. But the person who already has a bunch of this stuff in place, if they're seeing a product sales page that's focused on beginners who want to start finally, you know, having tables of data and this and that, they're going to be put off by that. Um, and, and again, vice versa. So I think that's the big thing is we, we could, it, it's worthwhile for all of us to be thinking about if I can just track two a bit of additional bits of data about everyone, who, who are they? That might be industry, that might be demographic, that could be job role, whatever. And why are they here? What is the number one thing that they're looking for help with? So they join your email course. What do you need this email course to accomplish for you? I want help with X. When you pitch them on a paid product, take what they said there and throw it right back at them with the, the paid product that you're selling at the tail end of that email course. Because that's what they that's why they're here. And that's what they need to know that this paid product of yours can help them with. One of the things that I, I love about business is it's this massively uh, difficult thing to do, and it teaches you something every day, but it's fairly simple to explain or the, the models end up being fairly simple. So for example, if you want to double your revenue, there are essentially three levers that you can pull. You can either reach more people and convert them at the same rate. Or you can improve your conversion rates. You could double your conversion rate and convert more of the people you're already reaching. Or you can increase your customer lifetime value by either raising prices or getting people to stick around or whatever. And, and that's kind of it. If you want to double your revenue, you got to focus on one of those levers. And personalization really gets at that, that um, conversion piece, trying to increase the, the number of people that are actually signing up for your thing, either for your email list or actually buying your thing or whatever. And what I, I love about the direction that you've taken right message recently is that you've almost gone Trojan horse with it in a way, because people are already using these tools to try to get people to opt in more frequently to their email list. And by using personalization, you're showing them that you can get more opt-ins. So you're already Correct. doing something, you can apply this extra effort to it and you get more results from it. But as a small business owner, we all have so many things to focus on, right? Uh, so many hours in our day. And a lot of times it's going to come down to, well, should I just put out another piece of content and try to reach more people? Or should I focus on the content that I'm already putting out and try to do a better job of converting those people through personalization or, or something else? Um, I don't know where I'm going with this necessarily, but Barrett, uh, <laughs> does, that, does that jog anything loose for you? Yeah, totally. Uh, and I think it depends on the stage that you're at. You know, if you don't have an audience today, then you should create more content because you need to attract an audience in order to be able to convert them. Um, I think the hard part is knowing whether you have a big enough audience currently to focus on conversion. 
And my experience with a lot of creators who have been around the block a time or two and have, let's say you have a couple hundred pieces of content on your websites. So you've been at this for a while. You've been publishing consistently, whether it's video, audio, or written, um, and whether it's YouTube or your website or whatever, it doesn't actually matter. Just more, it's about uh, establishment of a base of content. We used to talk about pillar content inside the Fizzle community. And so my question would be, do you have pillar content that attracts people all on its own? And if so, then you probably have enough people that you should be making sure every new member of your audience knows about that really great content that you've already created. What I see over and over and over again is people get stuck in this hamster wheel of content and they don't know how to get off of it. And uh, Brennan has this concept he teaches called a shadow newsletter that's basically introducing people to the best content that you've already made that's most relevant to where they are in their journey. And it feels just like it's brand new to them, even though it might be years old for you. And so for me, it would be if you have great content already that's attracting people uh, to your audience, and let's say you have over a thousand or over 2,500 email subscribers, you know, some amount where it's not just your immediate friends and family on your email list anymore, it's truly people that are interested in your stuff, then it's probably worth your time to be focused on conversion before you continue increasing the size of your audience. And the reason is that it's like a leaky bucket. If you're bailing water out of a boat with a leaky bucket, then it's not going to go as fast. But if you have a solid bucket, then you're going to get way more water out. Well, for you and your business, if you can capture a lot more of your audience members as customers and do that the first time around before they sour on you or before they're tired of you and on to the next thing, then you're going to earn more money from every person that you attract to your website. Uh, and so I would say that would be kind of my offhand how to decide. And you know, we, uh, we see this all the time when you were on the fizzle team, Barrett, I remember that, uh, we locked ourselves in a, an Airbnb for a few days and worked on several projects. And one of those that you were pushing for was to focus on our email conversion. And we worked pretty hard on it. And I think we like tripled our subscriber rate at some point because we just focused on what's the messaging, uh, you know, how are we trying to reach people and, and, and where are we placing these things in front of them? And that was the difference between, you know, uh, a thousand and 3000 people a month or, or something like that at the time. Uh, but I see this all the time, even with people who are just starting out, I talk to people who have been working on creating content for a year or two, and at the end of that period, you know, you ask about email list. And the thing that I love about growing an email list is if you can't get somebody to sign up for something for free, like good luck trying to sell them something eventually, right? <laughs> so an email list is this like microcosm of everything that you need to do to grow your business eventually. And at the end of a year or two, it's not uncommon for me to hear somebody say that they have 50 people on their email list. And the sad thing about that is they don't generally know what their conversion rate is, but if we dug into it, I would guess that it's sub 1% or something. And uh, sometimes on calls with newbies, I'll pull up a tool that we use called Optin Monster, which allows you to create all these different forms and things. And it shows you right there what the conversion rates are. And even for us, sometimes we'll roll something out and it'll tell us that it has like a sub 1% conversion rate, but then we'll try something else and it'll have like a 4 or 5% conversion rate. And it's like, that's the difference between an email list of 50 people after a year versus 500 people. And that's an interesting threshold, right? You go from 50 to 500 and now we're talking about, ah, I might have enough numbers so that if I put something in front of them for sale, I could actually make a little bit of money. Whereas with 50 people, who knows if it's actually working or not. Um, Janelle, 
what what are you seeing in terms of like minimal audience size for people who are trying to sell a course for the first time? 150, 200. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had people in my group program who have sold and, and we're talking smaller numbers, but have sold something with a, an email list of 150 people. Um, I know someone who made $50,000 in their first year with an email list of 250 people. So I think this ties in with what we're talking about. It's about optimization and you're absolutely right. And I don't think it's just newbies. So with newbies, there's a lot of imposter syndrome, mindset stuff of starting first, starting an email list. Because Corbett, I've spoken to people who have been putting content out, but they don't have an email list. So that's, that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But then they, you know, they start, but they're on that treadmill that Barrett was talking about. But I've also, I have a client right now who has an email list of 20,000 people and doesn't know his segments, doesn't, hasn't optimi- optimized. So I think that that is key and it all ties in to what we're, what we're talking about. Optimizing, knowing your audience, knowing your segments before you get to that point where you're thinking about, okay, now I'm going to personalize my offers. The interesting thing about social media for all the complaints that we all have about it, um, because the number of followers that you have is right there in your face. Every time you log into the thing, every time you log in to post something, you see how many followers you have. You're acutely aware of the progress that you're Mm -hmm. making. But with an email, email list, sometimes you don't even log in there more than like once every couple of weeks or every month or something. And yet you're putting out this content and you have no idea how effective it's being for you. And it's crazy. You, you have to be making progress in, in some way and measuring that in some way, um, because if you're not, then you might just be wasting your time for, for months. Yeah. And that's key. I just want to say one of the best things that ever happened to me was someone in a former mastermind group held my feet to the fire and said, why aren't you measuring your numbers? And I think Barrett put together a great spreadsheet that I started using when I was, you know, first joined Fizzle. And that changed everything. So I, you know, this conversation about metrics is is so on point because I think there are a lot of people, especially newbies, who don't want to measure because it feels good, the validation of social media numbers, but we all know social media doesn't convert not even half as well as email. Mm -hmm. So putting that energy, again, optimizing your effort and your energy as well as, you know, the things that you're doing as, as far as how you communicate. Can I throw in Speaking, one other one other really yeah, interesting thing you should measure? Yeah. One benefit of collecting segment data is when you can associate that data on top of conversion data and see specifically what type of people are buying versus mm. which type aren't. That is the kind of thing that no one ever knows. If I were to ask anyone, so break down how people sign up for your product, but break it down by industry. No one can give you that data because most people aren't collecting that data and they're not correlating that data with their reporting. But when you do get that, when it comes to focus, marketing focus, it changes everything because you can say, I know with precision that these type of people are three times more valuable than those type of people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to focus all of my acquisition efforts on them, and then I'll figure out how to get the other ones kind of leveled up too. But that's the kind of thing that one of the other, even if you don't do anything with like personalization or whatever else, if you can start segmenting your list and then taking that data and using it with your reporting, you will learn so much about who's buying, what type of, like, it, it's just, it, it, it completely changed everything for me when I started reporting on, you know, with that kind of data, looking at funnel conversions, 
broken down by types of people. It's game changing. And, and just to just to um, make this clear for people, segmentation sounds like this big scary thing, but it's as simple as collecting data on people or behavioral <laughs> information on people. And it doesn't necessarily mean doing it in a sneaky way. Uh, one of the ways that you see it done all the time is in a welcome email, you just put a few links in the email saying, hey, which of the following describes you best? You? Click yeah. on one of these three links. And then they click on one of those things and it tags them. Or <gasps> when someone signs up for something, uh, you could ask them five questions in a in a um, in a brief survey, you know, ask them a few things that you would want to know about them, and then you're able to customize things based on exactly. that. Exactly. And, Bar- and, and Brennan were just, just laughing huh? about something. What was that? <laughs> I won't get on that soapbox today. <laughs> the, the gist of it is from the last time that I was on here talking about tags and custom fields and the difference between the two, but we don't need to get into okay. all that. <laughs> sort of a specific thing to email, I guess. But if I could jump in, Corbett, yeah. I think that it's helpful for people to understand what segmentation is and also those examples of ways that you can segment your audience. Because I think a lot of people do hear that word. And I know Brennan published an amazing guide, you know, the team at Right Message on segmentation. They hear that word and, you know, they get like just nervous about it. Oh, this feels like this huge thing. But no, it's it's really just identifying the buckets in your audience And it's so helpful, especially bringing it back to course creation, because so many people who want to create a course, they struggle with what coming up with an idea and segmentation almost, it flips it and it allows you to come up with offers based on where, where your audience is sitting, what pain they have, you know, and it, it really, you know, one of my courses was a result of a survey and segmenting that way and realizing, oh, they're not signing up for this because they need help with this. So let me create this thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's super powerful. And I do encourage everyone to give it a shot, either with that welcome email, which I've done. And I know Pat Flynn used to do that. I don't know if he still does. The The downside to the click the links is human nature. People, you tell them to click one thing, they're going to click all three links. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, of course, right message. But in between there are surveys. Surveys are super powerful for uh, for getting started with segmentation and seeing where your audience is. And even if, you're, oh. even if you're not going to use that segmentation for personalization or anything else, just knowing something about your audience gets you ahead yes. of so many people because so few people actually do survey their audience. They just rely on the little bit of feedback that they get unsolicited. Yeah. Yep. But if you are going to survey, say you're using Typeform or something, put in the extra effort to make it say when they submit the results, wire that up to ConvertKit or whatever you're using. Yep. Um, a lot of people don't do that. And when you can associate individually responses, not the raw freeform responses, but like select one with, say, ConvertKit, their record in that, that is, that's going to give you so many superpowers down the line, even if you're not using it just yet, just yes. having that data enriched in your email marketing account will help you immeasurably long-term. That is a, a pro tip right there. And it's something that doesn't have to take you that long. Mm-hmm. Next time you send a survey to your audience, make sure that you send that data to your email provider, whether that be ConvertKit or someone else. Because now inside of your email provider, you're able to see, oh, Brennan Dunn, he's been on my list for a year. And oh, here's the answers that he provided to this survey that I sent out. And oh, by the way, I'd like to reach 
everybody in my list who has this, that, and the other thing true yep. and see what they think about this or see how they respond to this offer. That's, yep. that's awesome. Thanks, Brennan. Um, before we wrap up today, I want to talk a little bit about scaling up because uh, we are graced with Barrett's presence today. And uh, Barrett has been on teams of one or two. He's been on teams of four or five. And now he is COO of one of the fastest growing companies in the world, running a 50 plus person team. And what I would like to know, Barrett, and uh, I'll open this up to the other folks in, in a slightly different way, but what have you learned from running a big team, a 50 plus person team that can also apply to tiny teams, to people who are running the average, you know, one to three person team, like folks who listen to the fizzle show. Yeah. Uh, so much, so much applies. And I think if you, uh, if you're listening and you're thinking 50 people, I can't imagine ever being that big, put the people thing out of your mind for a minute and think more about maturity of a business. So when I think about getting started. So much of what you're doing when you're getting started as a creator is trying to figure out what are the things that I can do, the levers, like you talked about earlier, Corbett, that are going to drive my business forward. You know, what are the topics that I need to cover that's going to attract an audience? What are the products I need to create that are going to get people to buy from that audience? Well, once you have those things locked in, so much of making a business successful and scalable is about process and making things repeatable so that you continue doing the things that drive the most progress for you. And so the parallels that I've seen between running a 50-person team, uh, we have about 50 full-time people and we have in the neighborhood of 30 or 35 contractors who support us as a company today. Um, what parallels to a small team is that you have to be specific about what leads to success. And so that starts number one with goal setting. One of the things that we brought into the ConvertKit team is a system called OKRs. It's a method of goal setting called objectives and key results where every year, and then you can break it down from year into every quarter or every six months or whatever you want to operate on. Uh, you have three to five objectives. And these are kind of like broad goals that you can set for your, yourself and your team. And then within that objective, you have three things to five things that would uh, mean you've achieved the objective, but they're measurable. So these are the things that like uh, increase traffic from 1,000 visitors a month to 2,000 visitors a month or increase my, uh, try or my uh, visitor to emails uh, conversion rate from 0.5 to 1% uh, per month or something like that. So setting very specific goals and being clear about those and making sure every person on the team knows what they are and that their work is contributing to that, I think applies no matter how big your organization is, uh, number one. And then a second thing I would add without taking up too much time on this is um, really giving people, if you have anybody working for you, even if it's just you, but if you have anybody working for you, giving someone clarity about what their specific responsibilities are and what uh, work product you expect from them on an ongoing basis leads to so much more success than if you just hire someone and you say, well, I got another person now. I hope they figure it out. People aren't going to figure it out. They need your help as the leader of the business, understanding how they can contribute to the success of the thing. And that goes for yourself too. Uh, I was having a really great conversation. I can't remember 
where this was recently, but we were talking about the different roles or the different hats that a business owner has to play, uh, put on. There's the owner hat. So the person looking for a return on their investment of time and money. There's the manager or leader hat, the person kind of setting strategy, making sure the work gets done. And then there's the person who's executing the actual doing of the work. And if you're a, a solo business owner, which many of the listeners to this show are, you've got to know when you're putting on those different hats. And, um, that is one thing that's very different, uh, is that if it's just you, you need to be able to think in those very specific lanes at different times and assign yourself work based on that. But that comes back around to the point of you need to give yourself and that executor or sole contributor role clarity on what your job is every day. Cause if you don't know what you should be doing to drive success of your business, then you're going to waste a lot of time and you'll probably be pretty frustrated. I love it. The um, we were at lunch uh, last week, Barrett and I, and we were talking a bit about the different roles that exist at ConvertKit, and and this is a, a fun conversation because there tends to be overlap in you know in companies, especially tech companies, in the types of roles, and it all breaks down usually into like five or six different roles. You've got customer support, you've got product, you've got engineering, you've got management, and uh, so on. And just when you have that conversation with somebody like Barrett and he's counting, well, we've got seven people in this and nine people in that and two in this. And then you think about the tiny business that you're running and the fact that you have to run all of those different things, all of those six different areas. And maybe you have one person, maybe it's just you, maybe you don't even have a full time um, situation for yourself and, and you're trying to do all six of those things in, you know, in, in half a day. Uh, it's amazing that any of us are able to do that as small business owners, but the work that gets done at the end of the day is the same. You still need to reach an audience. You still need to build a compelling product. You still need to sell that product. You still need to support that product. And that's the same, whether you're a half a person or you're a 50 or 80 person team. Janelle, uh, in your experience with outsourcing things, do you feel like it makes sense for the founder of a company to do every role themselves first before hiring something out? Or uh, can you just hire something out from the beginning? For example, like let's say that you had zero technical skills Mm -hmm. and there was a piece of your business that relied on some technology. Would you be the kind of person to like learn that and try to do it yourself first? Or do you think something like that can be effectively outsourced from the beginning? That's a tricky question, Corbett. <laughs> I think that um, I think that it depends. It's not black or white because there are very uh, I don't want to say low level, but yes, low level tasks. You know that you know maybe I need to create a logo, and I have no interest in figuring that out, and I'm just going to outsource it. That's not a make it or break it thing. But I think when it comes down to particularly profit generating processes and client facing when you have things that are that are integral to running your business i do think you as the founder need to do those so that you understand the process and you are able to document before you hand that off to someone because to barrett's point people aren't going to just figure it out and it's going to be a horrible experience of you know onboarding and orientation if you just throw someone in so i this earlier this year i hired a virtual assistant you know, finally. And I had to go through those different hats again. And really it's been a struggle of, okay, stop doing and just delegate. But making sure that I understand what it is I'm delegating so that I can communicate that. So I think it's helpful, but it takes a bit of a 
time and experience to understand that you have to, you have to do that. You know, it's not intuitive. Everyone starts and immediately they, they want to quote unquote scale and hire and do all of this stuff. But it's like, do you have systems and processes? Have you really sat down and thought about how you do a thing? Brennan, in your experience, does uh, hiring people make every problem go away? Is it magic having extra people on your team? So, I mean, we, I haven't done a, a lot of hiring yet for right message. We're still a small team, but I, um, short answer, no, I, uh, to, to kind of go to Janelle and Barrett's point, I, I'm in a lot of these Facebook groups for SaaS companies and every day somebody posts like, Hey, how do I hire salespeople or how do I hire this or that? Because what, what they're seeing is that they don't know how to sell or the product's not selling. And they think, I just need that silver bullet of the right sales hire, or I just need the right content producer. And then everything will work and I'll have an audience. And I'll have a list and all this stuff. I think to go back to Janelle's point, there are certain things like it doesn't make sense probably for me to learn Adobe Premiere and to edit videos, right? Because that's very commoditized, you know, to put it bluntly. I mean, that's very much mm -hmm. like... I need this thing produced. I need somebody who knows video production to help me produce it. But you you end up seeing a lot of, and I'm guilty of this, where people who are thinking like, instead of me thinking, why isn't this thing selling? I think all I need to do is just get somebody who is a salesperson, then everything will just magically work. And so, you know, I, I know for myself that that was the attitude I had early on where, you know, I hired somebody to help me with marketing. And I would largely think, well, you know, maybe I can kind of sit back and, you know, do the do the CEO four thing, <laughs> and um, just like you know, sit back and play administrative person all day or something, right? But now, you know, I, I've I've come to realize, and again, I, I knew this going into it, but I think we it's easy to delude yourself, uh, frankly. Um, I I didn't really think through that. You know, is this person that I'm bringing on going to be an auxiliary, somebody to help me where I'm saying X, Y, and Z needs to get done, and you do X, I'll do Y, then you do Z? Or is it going to be a, I need you to bring your expertise to the table and think of what needs to be done outside of me? And that's something I'm still, frankly, struggling with is that balance of the two. Because in my mind, I know how I think everything should work. And I've always struggled with leaving it up to others on the team to say, well, how do you think that we should go about growing this business? Um, so to put it bluntly, I'm probably not the best qualified person right now to, to answer this. Um, but I know from my own experience, I've messed up a lot with that attitude of, you know, just bring somebody on. They're smart. They'll figure it out. And we all know we just need to grow the business. So I'll grow the business my way and they can grow it their way. And hopefully you know, it'll just grow. Right. Um, so no, I'm, I'm, it's still a work in progress for me. I know this is a kind of a convoluted way of attempting to answer this question. Mm -hmm. Um, it's still a work in progress, but I think the more I learn about myself and that I know what my weaknesses are, I know what my strengths are. My strengths are in things like content creation. My weaknesses are in managing relationships with, with like partners and stuff. So I'm thinking, well, how do I get somebody who can work with me to fill in those gaps uh, versus me trying to say, I need to become an expert at literally everything uh, as a prerequisite. I think I should know 
how to manage partnerships and how to do this and that. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm, I'm necessarily that good at it long term. Barrett, you've been in situations with different kinds of founders, and you've probably seen this uh, clinginess that some of us get to certain things that we do inside of our businesses and reluctance to give them up. How do you help people prioritize what they should be giving up first when mm-hmm. hiring? Well, so much of the role of a COO in any company is helping founders give things up and and kind of let go of the things that they don't need to be doing. But there's two things. One is, um, as someone that's going to hire a person, you have to embrace that you're not hiring a person so that you don't have to work anymore. You're just choosing the work that you want to do. Like, if I could hammer that into people's brains, that there's there's just not a lot of businesses you're going to run that are going to magically produce money and you're not going to have to work. And nothing is more true than hiring people uh, or nowhere is that more true than hiring people. People require management. They require leadership. They require vision and someone to help them see where they're going. Uh, And so I think your job as someone running a business is to provide those things when you decide to hire someone and to hire people in to do the things that you simply don't want to do anymore. And then to keep the ones that you do, because the moment you start hiring people to do all the stuff that you love and you take all the shitty work that you don't like doing is when you're going to be an annoying boss and you're going to start stealing stuff off of other people's plates that you've hired them to do. And they're going to get frustrated and you're going to get frustrated. And if you just would have thought a little bit more clearly at the beginning, what are the things I no longer want to do in my business? And how could I hire those out so that I can get more leverage on my time? I think that'll probably lead you in the right direction. And then it just goes down to creating clarity for people, providing that good leadership and managing them actively in the way that you've always wanted to be be managed. Yeah, empathy can go a long way with working with people. Barrett Brooks is COO at ConvertKit and you can find more at ConvertKit.com. Thanks, Barrett, for being here. Thanks for having me. Brennan Dunn is founder of Right Message, and you can find more at rightmessage.com. Brennan, thank you for being here. Thank you, Corbett. And Janelle Allen is founder of Zen Courses at zencourses.com. Thank you, Janelle, as well for being here. Thanks, Corbett. Thanks, everybody, for being here today. And thanks to you for listening. If you like today's episode, would you mind leaving us a review? Just head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and click the write a review button. Listeners like you are our best source for getting the word out about the show and a review or referral would mean so much to us. As always, you can find links to everything we talked about today over at fizzleshow.co slash 342. I'm Corbett Barr. And until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. Thank you.